Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Plot Devices. Hopefully, as you're listening to this, the first live setup episode, because now we actually have social media and things where you can click on us. We'll give that in just a moment. Uh, my name is Brandon King. I am your host for today, joined alongside Samantha and Corvaya. Sam, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Also joining us is Noah Guzman, who has, who has fixed his computer, and we can only hear his voice now. Let's hear your voice. We can't hear his voice. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I'm here. Thank you to all who have tuned in to our earlier episodes. Um, I'm happy to get this snowball of a show uh, rolling. We're three episodes in, um, and I'm ready now to just have them uh, coming out regularly for you all. Uh, and I'm excited to be here with two great hosts. As Noah has pointed out, we are live on this. Uh, we have a Spotify page. You can follow Plot Devices Pod. Uh, go follow us on there. We also have Twitter and Instagram under the same name and Facebook, also at Plot, uh, Plot Devices Pod. So go follow us there. All the episodes are there. And hopefully when you're hearing this, it will be timely and fun as we get into the news for today. I hope that transition was good. I'll find out in the edit. Uh, let's get into the first topic for today. Matrix is back. Are we living in one? That's up for you to decide. But we are getting the fourth trailer or the trailer for the fourth Matrix movie, Matrix Resurrections. Has it long been, has it long last been dropped? Uh, it's been getting buzz at CinemaCon and within sort of, you know, the Warner Brothers rumor mill for the last several months. We thought it might get pushed back. This trailer apparently is insisting that it will not be the case. Uh, we're getting that release date on December 22nd. We get the return of Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and Jada Pinkett Smith, all who returned from previous installments, as well as Lana Wachowski back in the director's chair, her first time solo in the director's chair, actually. As far as new cast members, we also have Yaya Abdulmatin II, of course, from uh, recently on Candyman, which is in theaters right now. He is playing the younger incarnation of Morpheus, as we got uh, confirmation from the trailer. Also joining the cast include Priyanka Chopra Jonas, uh, Jessica Henwick, Jonathan Groff, and Neil Patrick Harris. And once again, Matrix Resurrections is set for both a release on HBO Max as well as in theaters on December 22nd. So just around the time for the holidays and only one week after, Spider-Man No Way Home is set to hit theaters. We'll see if that you know keeps release date or not. Uh, oh. Noah, I want to get uh, your thoughts on the trailer first. First of all, your expectations going in as I, I, I actually don't know how big of a Matrix fan any of us are. So I want to get your close on that. And then also on the trailer itself and all the, you know, weird Wachowski nonsense we're going to be getting. Always here for the Wachowski sisters. I grew up on the Matrix films. My dad made sure that I knew uh, those Morpheus references. Trinity's like flying crane kick, so iconic. I'm a big Matrix fan. So I don't think that the Matrix Resurrections film was long awaited um, for me. You know, when Revelations came out, um, of course we have Matrix, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revelations, and then I played the Matrix video game. So I felt like that was ample content for me growing up to be, uh, to close that chapter of the Matrix. But then when I heard that Resurrections was announced, of course, keeping busy, uh, with, with some Wachowski content, I watched Sense8 on Netflix. And that one, um, is just a beautiful show. Um, if you haven't checked it out, um, just another work of theirs that is, absolutely uh, gorgeous to look at and has an amazing story. So now that Lana Wachowski is directing this uh, solo, um, I, I like the double, right? I like the sisters working on their projects together, um, but I'm ready for it. I have no, right now my expectations are I'm ready to dive into the matrix. Like we get our, we get our tease of the red pill, blue pill. Um, we see this new version of Morpheus, the younger version. We have Neo now with some John Wick hair. So I, I want to see how he embodies Neo now lo looking so much like John Wick, especially for those maybe younger audiences who don't know him as Neo, um, which would be a crime. You need to know Keanu Reeves as Neo. I'm ready for what the Wachowski has prepared for us because 
I, I know that Carrie Ann Moss uh, was returning. Like that was one of the first castings that I think uh, I got super amped up about because Trinity and Neo are like, you know, one of those uh, couplings that I always admired in the movies that I watched. Um, Sam, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. So I've actually committed a crime as your words take it because I did. Not, <laughs> I, I grew up in a household that um, we, we didn't really watch too many like sci-fi things. So I, uh, once I started to care about movies more like I do today, um, I started to backlog all those things like star Wars, Lord of the Rings, uh, goodness, and all other major franchises like that. And so Matrix is one of those I have not hit yet. Um, and so I, I actually have never seen a Matrix movie. I've seen all the memes. I am a very basic person when it comes to knowing about the Matrix, where, like, you know, I see all the memes and the jokes. I understand the red pill, blue pill, and, and that concept and what it does. You know, just seeing the trailer, though, I'm really excited to see how many people are returning from the originals. I think that's really exciting that we have that same series director with, um, you know, Keanu Reeves and Harry Ann Moss and Jada Pinkett Smith in there again. So I, I think that's just something really exciting to look, you know, to look forward to. And out of curiosity, because I saw some people talking about it, some people think that there really isn't a huge difference between the first Matrix and this one specifically with uh, Resurrections. Do, do you kind of feel the same way that you feel like the plot's very similar at all? The thing is, I didn't really gather much of any plot really from this trailer. I gathered hints as far as, you know, how the human and machine world are going to intersect in Neo's new journey, so to speak, because I thought, spoiler, I thought that, you know, died in the third one. So I thought maybe there was a thing there. Um, but I, I, I didn't really gather anything definitive from that. What I got from it was um, modern day Neo kind of like traversing his everyday life. Um, but I guess going through something that kind of clicks in his brain that maybe my reality isn't what it ought to be or isn't maybe what I'm seeing isn't what the world actually is. And so he's presented from a, with a younger Morpheus as, you know, we get that same shot of red pillar, blue pill. So that kind of resurrected those memories in my head where I'm like, oh, I really hope this doesn't go the route of just walking us through that first, you know, the first few plot points of the first, of the first film, because, you know, we're Matrix fans. We want to get back into the Matrix. And that, that doesn't mean uh, carrying on this like fish out of water trope, um, that they had done in the first one. Uh, I'm not worried about that though. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that looking at the trailer, they're just showing us the bare bones before they just pull back the veil and, and show us everything else that's behind the curtain. I love all of those fast leather flapping sound effects whenever they go into uh, their slow-mo focus. Uh, <laughs> that's a video game reference. I don't know. Like I'm watching the trailer and I'm just, I'm, I'm obviously watching uh them do all these crazy CGI flips, Neo's backbending and curving uh, RPG missiles. And that's like, that got me so um, hyped up when I watched the original movie. So even if it's the sound effects alone, I'm ready for this new Matrix. Brendan, uh, were you going to continue that? No, yeah, I, I was just going to quickly run down that I, like most people, I really like the original Matrix. I watched it, you know, when I was a teenager or whatever, and I did watch the sequels, but I don't remember that much about the sequels. Again, I remember the ending. I remember certain things that were like the bike chase, the weird like dance rave in the second movie and, you know, stuff like that. I remember things like that, but I don't remember a lot of the big things. So I'm hoping to revisit that before Resurrections. I have no doubt that if nothing else, this will be fresh because the Wachowskis are nothing if not filmmakers who do things that no one else does. I mean, 
whatever you want to say about Jupiter Ascending, it did things that no one else was doing. You know, whatever you want to say about, you know, Sense8 or, you know, Vier Vendetta, they are daring filmmakers. I totally am excited for Keanu and, uh, and Carrie-Anne Moss to come back. I think they totally embody these characters. Very curious what Jada Pinkett Smith role will be in this, again, considering her role in the last few. Um, I'm ecstatic to see Jessica Henwick in more things. If any of you watched Iron Fist, she deserves so much more than that show provides. She is wonderful, and I cannot wait to see her in more things. Um, and yeah, the action looks great. It's a lot of familiar imagery. And it took me from being a person who was like, who needs a fourth Matrix to, I might be interested in a fourth Matrix. With that, we are going to move on to our second topic of the day. And this is the one that I'm actually kind of most excited to talk about. Uh, I'm not usually one for box office analytics, but I think this is going to be really interesting to talk about. So Venom, there will be carnage. Uh, let there be carnage, I should say. Um, that film just got moved back up two weeks. So it's com- now coming back. Uh, it's coming out October 1st instead of October 15th which has put the October box office in a bit of a weird place. Uh, we've, of course, been looking at, you know, November because of Eternals and, you know, December because of, you know, Spider-Man and now with uh, everything else. But October is shaping up to be a very competitive and packed month in terms of films, specifically just in terms of theatrical releases. Uh, let me run down this for you guys, just so you get a scale of what this is, if I can clear out my dar- my darn browsers. Okay. Right now, as the October box office schedule is going to be going for theatrical releases, uh, that week of October 1st, we have Venom, Let There Be Carnage, uh, The Many Saints of Newark, which is the Sopranos prequel movie uh, directed by Alan Taylor, which is also going to be on HBO Max. We have The Addams Family 2 coming out that week, so that'll be rounding out the initial for October 1st. The following week, uh, we will be getting, of course, No Time to Die, the 25th James Bond movie, which will be, if, which is, I think it's important to note, that will have been out for a week in the UK prior so there will already have been some box office receipts for that, but most of the world will be getting it that week of the 8th. Uh, moving on to the 15th is the film that I think will take October for the cake, which is Halloween Kills, as well as Ridley Scott's The Last Duel with uh, Jodie Comer, uh, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon. And uh, the 22nd, the following week, we have Dune, which we've all been ecstatic about, also dropping on HBO Max. We have Ron's Gone Wrong uh, with Zach Galifianakis, kind of a Big Hero 6-esque story. And uh, also The French Dispatch, which is Wes Anderson's long-delayed next movie with everyone in Hollywood, and we can't all wait for it. And then finally that week is going to be Edgar Wright's uh, new movie, Just in Time for Halloween, his sort of, you know, uh, kind of 70s horror movie aesthetic uh, filled Last Night in Soho with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith, among others. Uh, We also have a couple smaller releases that month. Uh, Titane, which is beginning a lot of festival buzz, uh, as has Mass with Jason Isaacs. Uh, Todd Haynes' The Velvet Underground documentary which is dropping in theaters and on Apple TV, and Guillermo del Toro and Scott Cooper's Antlers, which I'm not sure, Noah, if you've heard anything about, but it sounds absolutely fascinating. October is looking absolutely stacked. I do just want to add a quick caveat that obviously the films, the 22nd and the 29th, so Dune, Last Night in Soho, those type, those will be extending into November, obviously. Those will be accruing some November box office as well. So if we're just thinking in terms of October, there is that with you know Venom and everything else, but we are extending it to November as well. Sam, I want to start with you. If you have to boil this down to a top three, just most successful in that month, what do you boil it down to? And just if there's any other standouts to you. Super easy, Brandon. So I actually think that the top three in no particular order for October will be No Time to Die, Dune, and Halloween Kills. And I think it's just because of the fans behind it. And I think it gives you like a nice variety of different people who like certain movies obviously you're going to get like all the bond fans with no time to die halloween kills all horror fans and it's october that's going to do well for a while leading up to halloween and then with dune it's so 
so highly anticipated and the early reviews from it have just been amazing i mean i think that it premiered in, in the venice film festival worldwide and so it just it people were saying that it's like this generation's Lord of the Rings. And that's, that's pretty high praise. And so I just feel like there's so much hype behind it. The cast is phenomenal. It's a book that's been out for years, like a book series that people love or hate, depending on who you ask. But the point is, I just think there's um, a big spotlight on Dune. So those three to me feel like the, like they're going to be the ones raking in the most money. So how about, how about you guys? Sam, I mean, it's no, it's no question. Dune is going to be like dominating the box office on when it finally releases, because we've heard about Dune, whether it's, it's a gorgeous cast or um, just the scale of what that movie's looking to accomplish. We dropped the trailer dropped and it just looked phenomenal. Um, It's got me and the remnants of my scattered quarantine book club, like thinking, do we want to come out of our caves and read Dune together? Um, but that's still just a conversation. We don't know if we're actually going to commit to it. Uh, but yes, Dune is up there. Halloween Kills, for many, an original final girl with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis up against the Michael Myers. And Halloween Kills is going to come in, I think, second. Will it beat out No Time to Die? They're not against each other in the same weekend, but I'm curious of that opening weekend, how, how they both will do. Um, I think Halloween Kills is going to smash No Time to Die, honestly. Um, but those three, I'm going to have to agree with you are going to be the top three for the month of October. Now me, the three that I'm most looking forward to, uh, I'm not going to include Venom because there is news that Venom's, uh, runtime is an hour and 30 minutes. And when you compare it to the original, it is close to two hours. It's like an hour 55. And so that just makes me go like, there's a lot less movie than I thought there was going to be. Um, in this new Venom and having a uh, Woody Harrelson be carnage. I was I was kind of ready for like a longer debut of the character and I don't want it to be short lived. So that's why I got like, I got worries about that film. So when it comes to the three that I'm looking forward to most, um, I will be reviewing no time to die. So I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Uh, Halloween kills, of course, but last night in Soho has like grabbed my attention and has refused to let go. Like I love Anya Taylor joy, saw her in um, the witch for the first time and just been following her since the queen's gambit. We all know the type of game she ran in that show. And those are my, those are my top three and honorable mention. I'm going to talk about antlers because yes, Guillermo del Toro, uh, his new picture, he's not the director, but I believe he was a producer. It's based on an original short story. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's going to be a new horror that I, a new creature feature that I think I'm totally ready for. And um, directed by Scott Cooper. Thank you for that, Brandon. Uh, Those are the four that I'm looking forward to most. And when you say Anya Taylor-Joy and the witch, you mean the Vavitch, right? The Vavitch. <laughs> that's, that's a deep cut if anybody looks at the witch poster. But anyways, you know, that was a good response because after I turned it over to you guys, I thought I should have mentioned the ones I'm actually looking forward to. And so the top three that I'd be looking forward to are um, actually Dune as well. Uh, the French Dispatch, I'm very excited about because it's such a highly anticipated Wes Anderson film. And like Brandon said, everybody in Hollywood is possibly in it. And I'm very excited about that. Um, and then last night in Soho, same. I, I really am looking forward to that because it's really grabbed my attention to have two of who I believe are some of uh, the most interesting young actors to follow at this moment. Anya Taylor-Joy and uh, Thomas and McKenzie. I think both of them are phenomenal and I can't wait to see both of them in a movie, especially because like with Thomas and McKenzie, I absolutely adored her in Jojo Rabbit. And she also played, maybe the two of you know it off the top of your head. She played her, a daughter 
I think it was called No Traces, the film. It was something Leave like No Trace. That. Leave No Trace. Thank you it's so much. It's so good. It's so good. And everybody slept on that movie, in my opinion. And so it's just like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just very excited about Thomas A. McKenzie. Can't talk about her enough. Um, so, yeah, those are my top three, um, personally, that I'm looking forward to. So, Brandon, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I, about, sorry, uh, no, it's freaking office. out on camera. What is that? I'm just saying, I, I never thought to look up Thomas A. McKenzie. She was in Jojo Rabbit. Oh my gosh. I, I love Jojo Rabbit. That is one of my, that was one of my all time from uh, Taika Waititi. Wow. Thank you for that, Sam. I mean, I could have looked it up on IMDb, but I'm so happy I got that from you. I, yeah, even put Last Night in Soho even higher on that list. Uh, Brandon, take it away. This is also your PSA to go watch Leave No Trace. It's brilliant. It's probably one of the best films of the decade, in my opinion, neither here nor there. For me, as far as most excitement goes, Dune, I don't think Denis Villeneuve can miss at this point. I, again, I've heard the polarizing reactions. But all the things that I've heard negatives about, I think I will love in terms of scale, in terms of emotionality, in terms of everything. I have no doubt I'm going to at least like it, if not love it. Uh, the French Dispatch, I don't love every Wes Anderson project. We'll probably talk about that someday. Um, but I am ecstatic about this. If It's Wes Anderson attacking like weird, quirky 1940s European journalism, and I'm totally into that. Um, and again, everyone is in this, and of course. Uh, but also... Look, I don't like the first Venom movie, but I have faith that Andy Serkis can deliver a more cohesive, at least visual experience than Ruben Fleischer could. And I do like Ruben Fleischer, but I feel like Ru Andy Serkis has been garnering way more prowess as director than we give him credit for between Breathe and um, and Mowgli. And I really hope he can bring those things to this. So as far as expectations goes, those are that. As far as box office goes, um, No Time to Die has this. Like, I keep saying how Halloween Kills is going to, you know, pun intended, kill the box office. I think that's number two. I think No Time to Die. Look, theaters are starting to gradually open in a lot of places around the world. And Bond is a global franchise. I don't know how much it's going to make. I don't know if it'll crack, you know, 700 million worldwide or anything, but I think it will make bank. I do think Halloween Kills is shortly behind. That That October 15th release date is going to be amazing for it because it is going to have legs into Halloween and that is going to that is going to bolster so much of its total. And then as far as a third most successful I again, I think it might be Venom, just because that first movie, somehow, some way, it made eight hundred million dollars almost in its sleep. And I know that we are in you know very different times than you know fall of twenty eighteen, but I have to believe that that audience will come back for that kind of spectacle fun that the first Venom did. Again, as far as box office goes, uh, No Time to Die, Halloween Kills, and uh, Venom: Let There Be Carnage. And as far as expectations go, I will go Dune, French Dispatch, and. Um, why am I blanking? Uh, Venom about the recharge as well. I think that's really interesting. Um, it's a good take on Venom, especially because I think there is going to be more um, light on Venom in general. Like for people who might not have seen the first movie that came out, um, you know, there are small things that are going on with Venom's name in it. I mean, first of all, this thing, it feels like a huge not a PR stunt, but it's just, there's a lot of PR on this movie at the moment because of how many times the release date's been flipped around. It, it could do really well. And especially because like, I mean, Venom was also just recently announced in a PlayStation showcase that he would be in Spider-Man too. And so again, there's just, you know, like, it seems like Venom's name is coming out in more general audiences. And so for all you know, that might make people excited about the movie. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but that was a good take. Thank you. Plus all the multiverse talk, like if that thing of, oh, is Tom Holland going to show up in Venom 2, which he's not. But there is that talk about like how that is going to tie into, you know, Spider-Verse and everything. Mark his words, everybody. He just said he's not. So let's see if that comes true <laughs> or not. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do if I lose that bet, but I, I will do something. Let's move on to a much happier story. 
Blues Clues. We all love Blues Clues, right? Like we we know it from our childhoods to an extent. Uh, and Steve came back and made us cry. Uh, in, in, in honor of the Blues Clues 25th anniversary, I'm sure as many of you have seen online, uh, original show host Steve Burns made a return to the show with a video that is basically taking the internet by storm. Uh, the video shows Burns in, of course, the classic green you know, dress shirt wardrobe, uh, and he addresses his character's sudden departure from the show in 2002 in an incredibly heartfelt, emotional video to primarily the original audience of the show uh, as well. Uh, just a quote from the video, I wanted to tell you guys that I really couldn't have done all this without your help. And in fact, all that, all the help that you helped me with when we were younger is still helping me today right now. And that's super cool. Uh, and there's more that he goes on in the video. He goes on to talk about, you know, student loans and, you know, the challenges of leaving and, you know, mental health and everything. And uh, in case you just need some background, Blue's Clues was hosted by Burns between its premiere from 1996 to 2002, uh, when Donovan Patton took over the position as Steve's brother, Joe, and he maintained the position until the show's end in 2006. Uh, that show did end in 2006, but the revamped version, Blue's Clues and You, has been airing since 2019 with uh, Josh De La Cruz in the role as uh, Josh, the sort of uh, car the pseudo cousin, if you will, of both Steve and Joe's character. So it's all being kept in the family, you know, the continuity of the Blue's Clues verse, if you want to call it that. But needless to say, the entire internet is crying, including our very own Noah Guzman. Uh, Noah, can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember Blue's Clues from uh, my days being uh, babysat by uh, my grandma and I just I think it just had a special place in my heart because I didn't realize that it did like it, it had the the nostalgia value value of oh um here's somebody that I used to watch on my tv and they're they're kind of talking to me no longer as the audience that I was um because he's saying such words as like I never forgot you and um saying something like that like hearing that from one of your figures that you were constantly involved with as a kid uh you don't realize the impact that has until you watch it and you you know you don't let yourself become distracted you just take it in completely and um i'm texting my friends like <laughs> holy crap like this is actually getting to me like how are y'all feeling and they're like share the tissue box like pass it over to me because it's, they're crying too um it's such a beautiful message to share especially now um and it, it just felt so real like it didn't feel of course it was scripted but it didn't feel you know, like just for the sake of the show. I mean, and then I was, I was so surprised that it had 2 million likes on Twitter because that is a substantial amount on Twitter. So I was like, damn, this is hitting um, more people than, than I expect. And then I, of course I saw, I saw um, like some celebrity reactions in the comments and they're like, <laughs> uh, now I can, like, now I can rest easy knowing that Steve from Blue's Clues remembers me <laughs> and, and I helped him get through his life. Uh, and I feel the exact same way. Like it was just a, Nothing but heartfelt and um, came out of the blue. Uh, Sam, take us from the pun. I can't follow up with that pun. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but to be real, I you know my sentiments are really similar to Noah's because I, I also had a group message with some of my girlfriends and we were talking about like oh my gosh this came out of nowhere and and really really got to us. It, it for me personally it made me feel so nostalgic and uh, I loved Blue's Clues so much. I have really great memories of watching it when I was a toddler and you know it's I, I was a little bit older by the time that um, Steve was leaving so I think. I stopped watching it around like, you know, 2001, 2002. I think I got a little too old. But I mean, I even when I was a toddler, I went to like a Blues Clues live show. Soft spot in my heart. And so it was just really nice to see Steve address why he left. Because I think his his leave was so abrupt for so many people. And for some 
people in that younger audience, that might be a new concept like college. Why are people going away? I don't understand this. And so I think that was overwhelming and it's nice to revisit after all this time. And I think whatever the marketing team is doing right now at Nick Jr. with Blue's Clues 25th anniversary, it's been phenomenal. I mean, all sorts of different videos have come out between like playing different games on like who would do what or just nostalgic videos of like showing these cousins as a family. It's just been so pleasant. And I think it was really nice that Steve's video, this one that we're particularly talking about, came out around um, National Suicide Prevention Week. I, I mean, I feel like for some people it made a much bigger impact in a different way where it's like, you know, a a nice message that felt extremely heartfelt that like, yeah, you still matter. And it's like, look at you, you're, you know what you're, whatever you're doing, you look great. And it's like, you know, things like that, that just feel like a unifying message. I feel like a unifying message for everyone. It's, it's, it was really nice to see um, that break the internet basically. Funny of all the things to break the internet, you would not expect, you know, a incredibly heartfelt children's show presentation, you know, scripted social media video to break it. But uh, this is the world we live in. Yeah, like you guys, I, of course, have, you know, experience with clues as well. I literally came out the year I was born. I didn't know that until I looked this up, which is crazy, 96. Um, I am the age of Blue's Clues. That is an existential question. Um, but no, this was, but I think a lot of the general entertainment industry has sort of, you know, looked at chil- children's television programming, if it's not, you know, Sesame Street, and looked at it as, you know, it's for kids. Why does it matter? And I think this goes to a really important thing of kids understand this stuff and kids get gravitated to things at such a different level than adults do. Like when we all, you know, got attached to Steve as a host, it was because he was a friend of ours. He was our family, essentially. And, you know, when he left, like, I don't remember this. Maybe I just blocked it out of my mind. But, you know, I, there has been that thing of like, well, it hasn't been the same since Steve, and Steve left that hole. Obviously, no disrespect to Donovan Patton or Josh DeLacruz at all. I've seen clips from them. They are wonderful hosts. And there was also that uh, that video that you were mentioning, Sam, where it was all three hosts in like the same kind of like walking back and forth, like nice cheery thing. And I thought that was delightful. But I think this goes to like a bigger thing of like children's television matters and like children's audiences mem- matter. That's kind of what I gathered from it. We are going to move on to our fourth major story today. Uh, because Disney just can't get enough of Haunted Mansion, we're getting two Haunted Mansion projects just in time for spooky season because it's September and that's apparently spooky season. This week, we got casting confirmed for the studio's upcoming remake of The Haunted Mansion. Of course, the original uh, directed by Rob Minkoff, starring Eddie Murphy. Huge cult classic. We're getting a remake. Supposed to have Guillermo del Toro. Not anymore. This is going to have Keith Stanfield, Tiffany Haddish, Rosario Dawson, and Loki star Owen Wilson, who I guess is staying under the Disney umbrella, so to speak. Uh, Justin Simeon, actually, best known for his work with uh, Dear White People, uh, Bad Hair, and the upcoming uh, Lando series for Disney+. Plus. He will be directing this movie, as well as from a script from Ghostbusters 2016 and the Heat writer uh, Kate Dippold. There is no release date currently set for this. However, production is supposed to begin sometime in the next few months. Uh, however, if you do need your Haunted Mansion fix and just don't want to watch the original, there is a release date now set for Muppets Haunted Mansion, uh, which is going to be October 8th, streaming on Disney+. Plus. This will be sort of a spinoff of the Muppets Now series. The story is going to center on Gonzo, who, after his Daredevil pizza as the great Gonzo, will attempt his biggest challenge yet, uh, spending an entire night in the Haunted Mansion itself. Terrifying. Muppets Now uh, director Kirk Arthachie will direct and write the project, which will see Darren Criss uh, pop up as the caretaker, as well as guests like Craig Robinson, Pat Sajak, and uh, Jesse's Sky Jackson. Sam, I want to start with you. Of both of these projects, which are you looking forward to most? And uh, are you interested in the idea of more Haunted Mansion properties? 
Yeah, I I am actually looking forward to the remake more. And I think it's just because with the Muppets, I wasn't ever a huge fan of them. Like, I, I, I can't really recall any times or good memories of them where it's like, yeah, like same as Blue's Clues, for example. Um, so for me, I'm just excited about the remake and I want to see that take, especially because I thought that the original with Eddie Murphy wasn't bad. But that's also coming from someone who saw the movie when they were younger, like, you know, like a, a kid. So, <laughs> you know, I was definitely the right audience for it and um some things have aged well some of it hasn't from the original movie but um that's why i'm excited about this cast especially because i i actually really like lakeith stanfield and i think that you know that's that's promising i'm glad that he's attached to the project but you know having said that i'm actually a little skeptical of both of them i'm not really sure how to feel about them and they kind of came out of left field and so i i'm worried that both will flop or that Muppets Haunted Mansion would actually do better than the remake. Um, So I'm a little skeptical of them, but I'm excited to see what that'll bring for us. I'll just say really quick, I actually am excited for Muppets Haunted Mansion. I love the Muppets. I've really enjoyed the Muppets Now series. I know it hasn't been doing great numbers on Disney+, Plus, which kind of sucks. So I'm a little bit afraid that it's going to, you know, for lack of a better term, flop on the streaming service, especially with everything we're supposed to be getting in the next couple months on it. Uh, I love Darren Chris. I think he will do a great job at this. I love the premise of it. It sounds goofy and cute and really cool. Um, And so I hope that'll be really fun. As far as the remake goes, I will admit I'm a little sad we're not going to get that rumored Guillermo del Toro project, which was actually supposed to have Ryan Gosling attached as well, which I would have loved. But this cast is super cool. I love Lakeith Stanfield. I you know, think Rosario Dawson is a tremendously underappreciated actor. Again, also staying in the Disney camp after Mandalorian Season 2. Um, and Justin Simeon, who I, I loved your white people. I never saw Bad Hair, but I heard it was okay. So I'm very curious to see where he goes with under a Disney banner, considering we are going to be getting that Lando series sometime, hopefully next year or the the following year. So I'm curious to see about that. I think it's going to be fun, um, but I am, of course, worried about both. Uh, Noah, over to you. I could also agree with you all on your on your praises for the cast list. Uh, Rosario Dawson, Owen Wilson, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Lakeith Stanfield. Like all these names are familiar names for us, especially after that Loki series with um, Owen Wilson, everybody loving his character. Signing up for more of the Haunted Mansion is not something I was prepared for in my future. Uh, I actually love the original uh, starring Eddie Murphy, and uh, we had that on DVD, so I watched it kind of all the time. Uh, you know, um, happy anniversary. <laughs> like, I, there's so many like, quotes that I think I don't realize I pull from the Haunted Mansion, uh, or at least between me and my immediate family because of how, how much of a classic it was in our household. Um, I'm looking at the people in charge of the production, like behind camera, uh, Dear White People director. Um, I enjoyed Dear White People as a series, so I have no doubts there. The the writer, though, having written Ghostbusters in 2016, I was not a fan of the Ghostbusters in 2016. So it gets me a little bit skeptical about, you know, how ambitious this script could go and whether it just ends up being too much for what a remake should be. Um, and then And then that begs the question, what should a remake of The Haunted Mansion be? Like how much how much um, original material are they going to like, I guess I have big questions of what, of what the story is going to surround itself in because the first one was really about a family um, getting stuck there and look at me. I'm like, I'm trying to recall the story now, but, and then the ride at Disneyland is my favorite ride. I have big questions about what the story is going to be. And I'm afraid that if it tries to do something uh, like what Ghostbusters did in 2016, 
it might just be a little bit too ambitious. And then speaking on the Muppets uh, Haunted Mansion, I, I'm not familiar with the with the Muppets Now series. So uh, Brandon and I will have to have a conversation about that off camera. I don't have much to say about this, honestly. I think the most intriguing part for me is that cast list. Um, Lakeith Stanfield, Tiffany Haddish, so hilarious. Cannot wait to see her. Um, and then Rosario Dawson and Owen Wilson. Curious what all their roles are going to be. Totally. I think there's potential there, but I also, you know, think maybe it's a bit too much. Maybe it's a bit overbloated. All right. We are going to end off our main topics today with, again, another sad passing in the world of uh, in the world of entertainment uh, this week. This past Monday, initially reported on by the New York Post, uh, police confirmed that on Monday, actor Michael K. Williams uh, passed away in his apartment at the age of 54. There has been no cause of death confirmed as of yet, although police are investigating as a drug-related death. Uh, His career spanned the course of over 26 years. Uh, He appeared in films ranging from The Road and Purge Anarchy. He appeared in uh, Alias and The Night Of and When They See Us. But he was arguably best known for his work as uh, Omar Little on The Wire, as well as uh, Albert Shockey White on uh, Boardwalk Empire both of which were on HBO, and the latter earning him a SAG nomination. He's also been nominated, I should say, for several Emmys over the course of his career, including one currently for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Lovecraft Country, which I know that Noah has seen, and maybe he can uh, talk about that just a little bit. Uh, Williams is survived by his son, Elijah, and we, of course, here at uh, Plot Devices send our condolences to his friends and family and loved ones at this time. An incredible talent loss. Uh, no, I want to start with you just because, uh, again, I mentioned Lovecraft Country on there. What do you think his impact in that series was? And what, what was your impact of uh, his other work, I should say? Thank you, Brandon. Uh, yes, unfortunately, learning about the passing, I, I, I realized that I, I, got, I got to the Michael K. Williams train uh, far too late. Uh, I enjoyed his work in Lovecraft Country, and I loved seeing him. I, I watched The Night Of um, within a year of watching Lovecraft Country because um, I had just been meaning to knock out that series. And when he appeared in that series, um, I also just was... Um, happy to see a familiar face there uh learning about his portrayal of um his character in the wire i just think that although he had like a it it was personally impactful to see him in lovecraft country portray uh, a queer black man uh it wasn't his first time doing so so portraying queer characters um also I, i believe in the wire um had an effect on the community that you know not not every straight actor in hollywood um has done the work for. So uh, I just want to point out that it, it was amazing to see that in Lovecraft Country, uh, different time and different struggles that a queer man would go through, and especially if they were Black, and then hiding it from his son. It's a whole plot point that I hope I'm not spoiling for you if you've already enjoyed it. But it, it's a shame that we can't, we can't further explore the dynamic between him and his son, because Lovecraft Country was one of my favorite HBO shows of last year. Learning that they're not going to continue with the season two kind of just gutted me. Um, but no, this was this was terrible news. Um, I am gonna. My sister is a devout The Wire fan, so um, having learned of his passing, I think uh, I owe it to myself to go back and uh, check out that work. Yeah, if, if I have ever had an excuse to finally watch The Wire, it's been this, and I've had excuses to watch The Wire for a long time. I've just never gotten around to it. But I know many people who were not only you know incredibly diehard fans of it, but who also worshipped at the altar of what Michael K. Williams brought to that character. Barack Obama literally named him as one of his favorite television characters of all time. So that should tell you about the impact that he's had. Um, I have seen him in a little bit of Boardwalk Empire, and he steals, frankly, every scene he's in, and that's in the cast that is stacked in that show. Um, I absolutely love him in there. He's terrific in The Night Of. And even when he pops up in like 12 Years a Slave for you know a few minutes, he's incredibly impactful there. Um, my favorite bit of trivia is that like he was supposed to play uh, Paul Bettany's character in Solo when uh, Miller and Lord was attached to that. But then, of course, you know, scheduling conflicts and everything. So but it's interesting to think like what he might have been in, you know, the Dearden Boss role in that movie. But again, it just 
just watching him as a performer, how much energy and sensitivity and kindness he would bring to those roles and lost way too soon. And also someone who is not just incredibly open about, you know, playing LGBTQ characters and, you know, that kind of spectrum in Hollywood, but also about addiction. You know, he was a cocaine addict for many years. He, you know, went to rehab. He talked about it many, many times very openly. He was, you know, involved in church groups. He would he was involved in addict groups. And he was one of those people who was open about getting help and, you know, speaking openly about getting help. And that's something I will always admire about the guy, even as, you know, I eventually go into rewatch, into watching The Wire for the first time myself. So again, condolences to his family. He was lost way too soon. Uh, Sam, I will turn it over to you. Yeah. And I also to echo that too. Yeah. Condolences to all of his loved ones. I mean, any tragedy, whenever you hear about someone passing, it's, it's unfortunate. And, and especially in circumstances like this, because to piggyback off of what Brandon was saying, I, I actually was more familiar uh, on uh, Michael K. Williams for his advocacy for all sorts of different causes. And, you know, it's, it's just, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say other than that. It's just, I think it's something that lots of different communities will definitely miss it with Michael K. Williams. They'll miss a lot of his important topics that he would support and, and talk about openly. Um, and, and, you know, just basically a person who advocates for things to get better for people in, in any sort of shape or form, which, you know, that's something that's just a huge loss here. But um, for as for me, with the work that I'm familiar with with him, um, similar Brandon, I also have seen him briefly in um, Boardwalk Empire, and I thought that he was really, really good in that, like you said, scene stealer. And I, I actually think that people are also sleeping on 12 Years a Slave. I mean, it, it won Best Picture, but I just feel like people don't talk about it nearly as much. Um, Best Picture at the Oscars specifically, but it's just like people don't talk about that movie as much and his role was so phenomenal in that movie and um funny enough i actually was first introduced to his work in alias because alias is low-key one of my my most favorite tv series of all time and i think it's just because again good memories attached to it um you know technically i i really binge watched the series before binge watching became like a thing in people's vocabulary (laughs) I, i remember staying up late at night while i was in high school just watching to the next episodes but his role in it was just really interesting plots are so convoluted in alias but long story short he basically is working for somebody he doesn't realize isn't the person that he's working for he's this other person's masquerading as a a, a main character but um yeah his role was really influential and his passing in the show like has his character's passing the show was it, it really went out with a bang it was it was a big scene for me and i remember watching horrified about that but yeah, no, it's definitely something we'll miss with Michael K. Williams and, you know, condolences to everyone um, who knew him. So for sure. Absolutely. And, and as we say with any time this comes out, go watch their work, like make sure that lives on. And, you know, again, such a talent. So that wraps up the news um, segment. Make sure that uh, the legacy of Michael K. Williams lives on and your watch list. Make sure you're checking in with some of those great uh, TV series and movies that we've listed today. Moving into our next segment, we're going to be talking about the new releases this week. And we actually have three of them on the list that we're going to be discussing today. First two are The Card Counter and Worth. Sam and Brandon are going to be talking to you about what those movies uh, are about and how um, they either won their favor or not. And I'm going to step away just for a moment to prep some notes so I can tell you all about James Wan's new horror picture, Malignant, unlike any of his work you've seen before. So Brandon and Sam, take it away. I'm going to mute myself for a little bit, okay? We are the opening act for all this, and I will turn this over to Sam because she actually reviewed uh, Card Counter for ASU Odyssey. The Card Counter, yes. So this one was a one that intrigued me mostly because Paul Schrader is attached to it. Um, so he is the director and writer for this movie. It is kind of like a 
like a revenge thriller, if you will. It's it to me, it's more of a drama as well. But it's basically about a man who is really haunted by all of his past sins as an interrogator. And and so he ended up taking the fall for one of his superiors and spent time in jail. But the of course that superior got away with it and started this new life and and became a very successful um owner of this different uh, business venture for security uh technology. But he ended up, uh, you know, I, Oscar Isaac plays our main character here. His name's William Tell. He's the one who ends up going to jail and taking the fall for um, these crimes. And so uh, while he's in jail, he actually learns how to count cards and becomes a really good card player. So, of course, as you might expect, this movie's way about way more than just poker. And so, you know, it turns into this this movie where you, you see William Tell grappling with, like, whether or not he should move on in his life or whether or not he should seek revenge, especially when um, he has a fateful encounter with that same superior who is actually played by uh, William Dafoe. And so with William Dafoe and Oscar Isaac on the cast list, we also have Tiffany Haddish who plays a love interest and also a sponsor for, for William Tell's um, ventures as a pro poker player. And then we also have Ty Sheridan in here who also has a bone to pick with uh, William Dafoe's character as well. So that's kind of my breakdown on it. And, as as we mentioned here, I did end up reviewing it for Odyssey Online. If you wanted to check that out, <laughs> long story short, I actually didn't like it that much, and I guess I should have expected such because um, with Paul Schrader, I actually really like his earlier work as a writer. So I really appreciated that you know he wrote Taxi Driver, he wrote Raging Bull, his his um, more recent stuff. I have not been a fan of like First Reformed. He also wrote and directed that movie, um, and that includes Ethan Hawke starring as a pastor, I believe if I remember that correctly, but it was just a little too crazy for me, especially near the end. Um, and so I guess I should have expected that, but you definitely feel this, this intensity and the suspense when you watch this movie that's very similar to like Raging Bull and to Taxi Driver. And so you definitely still see bits and pieces of Paul Schrader in there. Um, but the thing is, is to me, I felt like there were so many points in the movie where it was just wasted screen time i mean i i kind of briefly mentioned this in the review but like there's this one scene where this cocktail waitress or this just um casino employee excuse me is just uh at a bar crying her eyes out and yep. i think i think that tiffany haddish or oscar isaac asked are you okay and she's like yeah i'm fine and we never see her again and there was like literally, there was literally no purpose to that. Like I don't know how Brandon feels about it, but I just I thought there was literally no purpose to the story. It didn't make sense to me. And there are a few times like that where there are scenes that are kind of dead air, in my opinion, even though they're technically talking. And I, they really didn't need to carry on the Kirk with a C joke for as long as it did. And and Kirk is um, the character's name that's played by Ty Sheridan. I don't know. Like there were parts of it that just really bothered me about the movie. It felt like, you know, I, I understand where it was coming from, but it definitely didn't feel like a thriller as much to me. It was just so mysterious and it took so long to get to the point of where William Tell's coming from and his backstory that at that point I didn't really care much anymore. Um, although I know that this is very polarizing because this movie's doing super well in Rotten Tomatoes for critics consensus. So I probably didn't see the same movie that everybody else did. I'm really excited to hear what everybody else has to say about it. But um, as another side note, too, um, just the acting. I thought that the acting was really good in certain scenes. Like there were um, there are definitely scenes that I could pick out in my mind where each of those main four really shined. And um, I don't want to get into them because of spoiler's sake, but they were really, really good. Um, 
good scenes. And then the rest of it, it just felt flat to me. Like, I don't know if it was about the line delivery or if it was about the writing and they were just working with it the best they can. But to me, it just felt like kind of boring otherwise. And it was just like, okay, if you will. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it though, Brandon. Three words, Oscar Isaac bedroom. And that's the exact scene that I was thinking of too. So thank you for teasing it without any spoilers. (laughs) But the reason that disappoints me, that scene feels like that scene and also the one in the diner feel like outliers because they're they're the points in the movie where Oscar Isaac, who is doing a lot in this movie, I I might add, like he's doing, I think Paul Schrader is trying to take him much around the the line of, you know, stoic sort of mid seventies, you know, tough guy protagonist with, you know, deep seated issues, which is kind of Paul Schrader's bread and butter almost. I appreciate that, but it unfortunately means that those moments that pop off more and let that emotion burst out from an actor who is so emotive as Oscar Isaac is, they impact all the more, and it makes the rest of the movie kind of fall away at the seams. Um, I think Tiffany Haddish is completely miscast in this. Um, She's trying, and I really want to see her tackle more dramatic roles. I think she has it in her. I just don't think this is it, much less this approach that Paul Schrader is taking. And that's kind of my biggest approach to this is that, yeah, Paul Schrader is clearly bringing this angle of, you know, military trauma and, you know, cycles of violence and how that impacts, you know, people to kind of an incredibly unhealthy, unstable degree. And when that pops, I think it really does work. Problem is it doesn't pop that much. And Schrader is so, I don't want to be blasphemous and say like he's full of himself. Because of course, you know, Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver, wrote American Gigolo. Give respect to the guy, certainly. But I think he is way too in his own head about how atmosphere works and how pacing works and how, you know, all the kind of monotony of, you know, casinos and how all that works. Like, I think that is going way too much to his head. So for me, it drags way more than it should. It's not nearly as interesting as it thinks it can be until maybe the last couple of scenes. And and by then, I think it's too late. I I was way too mixed on this movie. I wanted to be better. Ah, well said, honestly. I I, I agree with that. And um, I also appreciate, you know, like some of the cinematography takes that they tried to attempt with as well, because there are times when the movie also blurs the line between like fact and fiction or like in the way that did William, uh, did, did William Tell make this up in his memory or did this actually happen? Was he as abusive as he claims to think he is? And so they really try to depict that by distorting our views in flashbacks with a 360 camera. And for me, I just thought that was very interesting, a very interesting cinematography choice. But to me, it didn't work personally. I, I think it's just because I was so distracted by how it made the the humans and, and all the actors look in 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 the it really distorted how they looked like it really squatted them down and it distracted me so much because of that um i i, I honestly wondered like i wonder how different it would look if maybe they chose to use like a fish cam or something instead like a fisheye camera anything else literally anything else i wonder how that would have changed the mood but you know like i do appreciate it um, you know, cinematography wise, what they're trying to do. But again, it was just another point that also didn't work for me. So I guess star rating for, for both of us, um, for me, I believe I gave it like a two and that's all because of Oscar Isaac and the bedroom scene, um, specifically an intense one, not a sexy time one, just to be clear. Um, so um, yeah, that's, it, that's how I feel about it. It's, it's a solid two for me. See, I, I can't go that low. And, and also, I should point out, uh, Alexander Dining is the cinematographer. He also worked with uh, Paul Schrader on Doggy Dog and First Reformed as well. Just wanted to point that out there. I'm going to be generous. I'm giving him a five. I think, again, the, the moments that work, I think, really do impact. I think really do elevate what Schrader is trying to bring to this. But again, I think he is way too in his own head. I think it gets way too muddled at times. And for a movie about poker, which also gave me weird echoes of The Accountant with Ben Affleck in terms of, like, you know, guys who are good at what they do and, you know, kind of the the OCD level of it all. 
like inter- that movie is way more entertaining and way more interesting and that's not a paul schrader project so i i think that goes to credit it no good point and then I think the next one that we could move on to is Worth, which yep. that's very interesting, too. And and since I took it off with the card counter, I'd, I'd like to hear uh, your intro take on it, Brandon, and just what you thought about it. Yeah, of course. So Worth is the newest project from, I keep forgetting the director's name, uh, Sarah Colangelo, uh, who also did the uh, kindergarten teacher with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal a couple of years ago. Fantastic, by the way, if you haven't seen it. It's also written by Max Borenstein, who is probably best known for his work on the uh, legendary MonsterVerse movies, which I think is a hilarious turn of career choice for him. Um, but I love that. Uh, and it's based on uh, Kenneth Feinberg's novel, uh, What is Life Work? It is the story of Kenneth Feinberg in this movie played by Michael Keaton. He was a lawyer, a, a special counsel who was approved by members of Congress in the wake of the 9-11 attacks to essentially determine the question of all questions, what is a life worth? You know, what what do the... What should the families of 9-11, who were being set up for a compensation fund in the wake of 9-11 attacks, what should they be compensated for? You know, should one life be mattered more than another? Should a CEO be more worth more than a janitor? He has to address this question alongside Amy Ryan, who plays uh, Camille Biros, his sort of uh, co-head at the law firm. Also in there is Shinori Ramanathan, who plays uh, Priya, uh, who is another lawyer at the firm. We also have Stanley Tucci as Charles Wolfe, who is a significant critic of Feinberg's work, uh, although a very kind of civil one as the movie goes on. And also uh, Lauren Benante, uh, Lauren Benanti, I should say, who plays the widow of one of the firefighters who died uh, in the rescue efforts for the 9-11 attacks. This is a, a really interesting movie, actually, and I wasn't expecting it to be that. About 10 minutes in, I found myself kind of having that thing where you lock into what a movie's going for, and it reminded me a lot of... Uh, did you ever see The Report with Adam Driver? Phenomenal movie. Yeah, I liked The Report. It reminded me a lot of The Report, which is, you know, guys in rooms, you know, tackling big subjects that are incredibly unpopular with a lot of, you know, kind of legalese jargon, a lot of, you know, emotionality draining its way through. But I think what Sarah Colangelo does so well with this is really establish the key dichotomy between Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci in this, which is that idea of, you know, the law versus emotionality, the, you know, objectivity versus subjectivity. And when the movie really gets into that vein, I think it's incredibly fascinating. Like there are scenes between them that are just, they're they're not the most electric scenes shot, but the way that the dialogue is actually written, boring scenes dialogue is delivered between these two. With Keaton, you, you really get that sense of, you know, he is a man of the law. He has to do the impossible and he knows he, he can't do the impossible, but he's going to try for some sort of, you know, mix of helping his country kind of glory sense of it all and also a duty to the law. And then you have, you know, Tucci on the other hand, who is this very kind of, you know, quiet, you know, centered person who in the midst of all of this, you know, all of this uprising and all of this, you know, unrest in the wake of these, you know, horrible attacks, he is kind of, you know, the leader of a lot of survivors groups. He's going down this path of civility about it. And I just found it incredibly fascinating as it kept going on, as we kept getting more, you know, cases popping up and more developments into that, um, you know, as we got more subplots about like, you know, LGBTQ uh, characters and where those fall into and where, you know, firefighters compensation funds fall into there. I just found myself getting really wrapped up in this. I wasn't expecting to, but I was impressed by this. Yeah. And with this movie, I I mean, there are multiple things and aspects of it that attracted me to it. And one of them was because it was um, from the same producers as 12 Years a Slave, it comes back and Spotlight. And honestly, you could really feel Spotlight vibes in here and not just because Michael Keaton and both uh, both, um, him and Stanley Tucci are attached to the project. But it's it's that same idea. Like, yeah, let's gather a team together and we're going to try to solve this one thing and address a very unpopular topic. And let's see how we could do this. 
And, you know, 9-11 is a very personal story for me as well. And so just any kind of media on it that addresses any aspect of it, I find immediately fascinating and I want to watch it. So with Worth, I was really, really interested in seeing where it would go because it, for me, captured me immediately. I thought the acting was really well done. You can say that it's a pretty muted movie for like a really heavy topic. It's muted in a, and I'm saying that as a compliment because it's like, you know, they, they really rely on the air that the movie brings like, and the atmosphere and, and the acting on everybody in, in this cast, they, they really rely on like quiet scenes where maybe they're just like looking at each other and they're thinking kind of the same thing, or maybe they're thinking something else. And I really just appreciate um, that scene that you're talking about with Stanley Tucci and Michael Keaton. They, they have multiple scenes that are the standouts of the movie, though, not fancily shot. And it's just really nice to see that they accomplish so much in those in those scenes and i especially like when their characters first met because stanley tucci's delivery is so natural with like a you know a softer tone and then all of a sudden he says you'll find that i'm your going to be your harshest critic that was a very threatening message and you're like excuse me what and even even michael keaton's character is like wait what was that especially because at first it seems like he's you know fair and civil and trying to hear um, Michael Keaton's character out when other people aren't willing to hear that. Um, so yeah, I just thought that the dichotomy of the two of them uh, playing those different characters was so, so interesting and really well worth your time, um, especially if you're looking to watch something in commemoration of um, the 20th anniversary, gosh, time flies of um, the the horrific September 11th attack. I was just going to add in that I like how the movie addresses the idea of, you know, victims compensation and the ideas of, you know, emotional compensation and how it very much with Stanley Chu's character keeps reiterating the point of like, this is not for, you know, the economy or the government or anything, you know, bigger than people. Like people lost their lives in this and we have to deal with that in a way that can be the most fair to the most people. And even by the end of it, like without spoiling anything, it doesn't help everyone. Like there are characters who don't go along with this and don't, you know, get the fair treatments, but it is a kind of, there is that kind of hopeful undertone to it that is very subtle throughout the whole thing that I kind of appreciated. Like, are you going to go with this? And eventually they, they kind of do. And I was impressed by being able to take that Avenue again, you know, based on real events and all that, but I was impressed that the film was able to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to see more movies on topics like this, where some people might not immediately think about, scenarios that people were put through through tragic events that are you know like 9-11 or similar too and so i'd even down the line like to see something on like the air traffic controllers i want to know what happened there or even people who were running the ferries back and forth and if there is media out there please let us know i'd love to know more about it and watch it but you know things like that like i i think it's interesting that we keep finding different angles to talk about and commemorate that and honor honor what people went through for that so um yeah thank you so much for that take brandon you know any star ratings and and i guess for me i i feel like gosh i don't even know what i i'd say maybe it's like a like a solid eight up there for me and you know for moments right now i'm not really exactly sure why but to me it just felt like it was a really well done movie it definitely does have its moments where it feels kind of like it could be a very forced political agenda similar to like an aaron sorkin uh type of movie or or tv show but i think it works well for this medium and so i guess for those reasons yeah i'll stick with the solid eight how about you brandon yeah there's definitely some sorkin edits in there i will say that much i don't know about the the writing but definitely some edits um as far as score goes like yeah this is uh, this is an easy eight for me i think this is really 
really excellently done. I think it's sensitively done. I think it's complexly done. Again, the performances are great. The you know cinematography is solid. I, at the end of the day, the story isn't quite. I don't think deep enough. I wish it. I think you could have gone more with this. Maybe even extended it to a full you know miniseries if you wanted to. But if you're going to condense this into you know under two hour movie. I think this is well worth your time. I think it's an it's a really engrossing drama, and I hope to see you know more like these get developed in the future. So with that said, we are going to turn over the man who is being patiently waiting and collecting his thoughts for the last twenty minutes. Noah, tell us about the madness of malignance, please. I have nothing. Okay, actually, no, I have everything <laughs> you need to know about malignance. Can you imagine? <laughs> After all that, it's like, yeah, you know what, guys, I got nothing. <laughs> Anyways. So from a uh, writer-director this time, James Wan is, is the director of Malignant, and uh, he's also credited as one of three writers. So James Wan, who is he? He is the champion of the Insidious and Conjuring universes, um, although oftentimes working with Lee Whannell, who is uh, the wonderful director of The Invisible Man, and also just like another champion of horror that I'm uh, always supporting. Um, you get the story, Malignant centers around a psychic haunting of a woman who receives murders murderous visions um as they occur so immediately like it begs a couple of questions okay so here are the three questions that i'm going to be focusing on as i talk to you about this movie one what or who is this uh entity that is haunting our main character Malignant centers on a psychic haunting of a woman who receives visions of murders as they occur in her city. So already it's it's really haunting to imagine uh, just waking up in a situation where you are not physically there, but you're watching a murder as it occurs. You can't scream for help. You can't warn the victim. You can't stop uh, the perpetrator. But um, it's something new, at least coming from James Wan, who uh, previously, like I said, was a champion in my uh, words from The Conjuring and Insidious Universes. I'm going to approach this uh, review sort of like with three questions. So the first question is who or what is this entity haunting our main character portrayed by Annabelle Wallace? Her name is Madison Mitchell in the movie. So who is haunting Madison? Uh, second question, what are they working toward? You know, is the motivation clear in this film? And then the third question is, are you going to be taken on a new journey, um, a new adventure from this uh, very stylistic director that you're already familiar with when it comes to a haunting in a house, right? So I question these because typically from James Wan, uh, at least the first question of who or what is this haunting that's occurring? What is this entity? I asked that first question because in The Conjuring, you have um, the Warrens being focused on because they are, uh, they perform exorcisms. So you are, you immediately know the story is going to surround um, a demon that is uh, either confirmed to be possessing a child uh, that they're going to be exercised, or uh, they're going to figure out the situation while they're there. And then Insidious, we get the line in the trailer, like this demon, it wants your son. And so immediately, you know, the motivations of the evils behind his movies. So first is what, or who is this entity that is performing the hauntings? Thankfully, we have uh, families in insidious and conjuring universes to take us on the journeys uh, that um, are in those films. In this movie, it's just Madison. It's just our one character. Um, there are some detective characters, and then her sister is a supporting character. But in the household, it's Madison by herself. And I think that that's new for James Wan, is telling a story where we don't have the back and forth of the paranormal investigators um, of the Warrens, and we don't have the back and forth of the family that exists in the Insidious movie. So that was, that was new. And I think that that's why, um, approaching this, I was surprised that 
dialogue didn't feel very like it just felt like it was not present in the film for the first half. Uh, so kind of turned me away. Well, uh, let's talk about motivation. So uh, I just covered that. So Insidious, the demon wants the sun and the conjuring, they're performing exorcisms. Uh, so I'm actually going to jump to the third question. Are you going to be taken on a new adventure or not? So for one, you got the house setting, which you've seen before. Two, we're bringing in the professionals. So we have uh, paranormal investigators in The Conjuring. And Insidious, you bring in pretty much the same thing. Like they're coming there to evaluate this, this scenario and figure out whether there's actually a demonic entity or not. In this case, we don't have like that ghost expert. We just kind of have two detectives um, who are approaching the situation uh, as if they're hunting for a killer because that's what's happening. There is physical killings going on in these other places um, that Madison is witnessing in her dreams or in her um, in this paralyzed state. Uh, the third thing is the twist. In Insidious, I will say that that twist, I don't know if either of you are familiar with that one, but Insidious uh, definitely got me. And I remember watching that in the drive-ins and leaving like with my jaw dropped. This time, are you going to be taking on a new adventure? Absolutely. I think everyone should go watch this movie, especially because it's on HBO now. So watch it right now. I chose to go watch this in the theaters uh, downtown in my city because I was just ready for that um, theater experience. And when I checked out the tickets, I was like, oh, this is a huge theater. And there's like 10 seats sold. And um, so I took the opportunity, invited a friend, and we went and watched this movie. And as somebody who like places my horror, like places the bar kind of high for my horror films, I walked out of this movie smiling and it wasn't because like I was absolutely petrified while I was watching it, but because I'm going to start laughing because there was so much hilarity and fun that was had in this film that I think it was so refreshing because the Conjuring and Insidious movies from James Wan are very serious, uh, very dark uh, while they have their like maybe handful of funny moments. It's they're not like funny films. This movie I think is not afraid to look at the ridiculous and just like, deliver that to you in its face. Like there are lines, there's literally a line at the beginning of the film where you see this like strange looking figure behind a veil. And we have a doctor like pull out her rubber glove or whatever. And she says, time to cut out the cancer. And it kind of took me and my friend, like by surprise, we're like, this is so campy. Like, why, why are they saying, why are they saying this? Like these are major lines and it had other members of the audience laughing with us. So uh, there are so many laughs to be had in this movie that you'll be surprised that, you know, you got to remind yourself that you're actually watching a horror film. That's not to say it's not scary. James Wan does horror, like in the home in always these two story, like waiting to be haunted homes uh, so well that remains true here in this picture. All I need to add about Malignant is that uh, it was so refreshing to see a horror movie not take itself so seriously because after witnessing like such tragic pictures as like Ouija or uh, Truth or Dare, I think those are movies that just lose, they, they almost lose the audience because they're trying to like rope you into whatever kind of evil that they have planned. When Whereas a movie like Malignant has fun with itself and allows you to like chuckle at the ridiculousness to the point where you you walk out of that movie with the ending in mind satisfied and thinking like damn that really wasn't a picture that i had expected to see but you know i'm not upset that i saw it so it's on hbo now you want a good horror flick um and something more then i would definitely check out malignant i won't ask you in terms of you know the year or one's filmography but where would you rank this in terms of one's horror expertise so in the in context of you know conjuring and insidious and that whole universe Oh, yeah. I have his picture list pulled up because um, 
So I found out in my short research that uh, James Wan directs The Conjuring and Insidious, but does not write them. Whereas in the sequels, he uh, joins the the credits as a writer as well. So um, I'm not going to mention, I'm only going to talk about Insidious and Insidious Chapter 2, because I think that those two are like peak Insidious. The others are kind of like falling off, um, in my opinion. Looking at what he has directed, so I see Insidious, The Conjuring, Insidious 2, and Conjuring 2. Um, this movie for me... Um, I would pull Insidious Chapter 2 is very high for me. I think this exists above The Conjuring 2, right below Insidious. Above Insidious for me is The Conjuring, and at the very top of this short list is Insidious Chapter 2. So still high up there for me for uh, James Wan's work. Um, I even place it above the second Conjuring just because I think that this doesn't try to do as much as what that sequel did. Um, check it out too. It's on the streaming platform and we talked about accessibility like on our first episode. So it's there for you. Take advantage of it and uh, always let us know on our, on, now that we've got social media, you can let us know at plot devices uh, what your thoughts were on the film. Real quick. Do you have a rating? Uh, I do have a rating. My rating for you today is seven and a half. Very pleased. Yeah. That's kind of in line with what I've been seeing from a lot of other people. So thank you very much for that. We are going to move on to our TV Nonsense of the Week segment. Again, we'll come up with a name for it at some point. <laughs> um, if one of you has a name out there, please drop it in our comments. I don't know. Um, that's the name. If one of you has a name out there, is the name of our segment. Um, so without further ado. <laughs> yes, without further ado, we're jumping back into our, uh, our weekly What If series. Uh, we're going to be talking episode five today. What if zombies? It happened. We got Marvel zombies. Oh, my God. It's so scary. <laughs> Uh, is it? I don't know. We'll talk about it. <laughs> Needless to say, this is episode five of What If. Uh, of course, What If Zombies. This takes place uh, basically right around the cusp of uh, Avengers Infinity War and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Essentially, the events of Ant-Man and the Wasp mostly happen. You know, they build a quantum portal. They team up again. Yay, everything's great. Except they find Janet Van Dyne and she's a zombie. She's been infected by some kind of weird quantum microverse virus it's never exactly here but needless to say it's weird science zombies so when janet comes back she is patient zero for the zombie apocalypse of the marvel universe hulk comes crashing down to earth as he does in the beginning of Avengers: Infinity war after his conflict with thanos but instead of finding uh dr strange and iron man and wong he finds zombie iron man and zombie dr strange and zombie wong also a group of survivors led by uh black panther once again voiced by the late chadwick boseman uh, Sebastian Stan comes back to voice Witcher Soldier, and actually uh, Hudson Thames is here voicing uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man in place of uh, Tom Holland. We also have Denai Guerrera as uh, Okoye, oh, and also John Favreau as uh, Happy, I almost forgot. Uh, as well as finally Evangeline Lilly as Hope Band together. This ragtag group of, you know, zombie individuals has to essentially reenact The Walking Dead and find some sort of cure safe haven that might be in New Jersey, that might have darker secrets to it, we don't know. Noah, I want to start with you again, going off of the uh, horror train we've been on for the last 10 minutes. What did you think of, you know, Marvel zombies finally coming to life, as it were? And where does this fit in context for the rest of them? Uh, the rest of what if for you, I should say. So happy that we finally arrived uh, to our Destination Zombie What If episode. I've been waiting for this since uh, the What If show was announced, just being a huge uh, Zombies fan, whether it be in my video games, whether it be in my movies, whether it be with my coffee, I am taking zombies all across the board. And to uh, we focused on the character Hulk as he comes crashing after being transported uh, by Heimdall back to Earth. And the events kind of follow immediately what happens when he when he comes 
when he appears in Infinity War. So the the Black Order um, is coming down to introduce Thanos um, and dominate the Earth. And immediately they're taken out by Earth's Earth's Avengers, who we learn are also infected. So after Janet returns from the quantum realm, pretty much the entire it's they say it takes like 24 hours or 48 hours, something like that, because immediately after the Avengers are infected, the whole world is doomed. Like these are Earth's Earth's mightiest heroes. So they're going to be Earth's most malicious zombies. Um, So I think overall, for one, the episode is at the top of my list. I loved the story. I liked um, how they played with uh, the morale of some of our characters. We get to see uh, Vision near the end of the episode, and I'm not going to spoil what happens there, but um, I think the morality of some of our characters is tested when they're in this zombie universe, and that's what I love to see. Um, some familiar horror tropes, like splitting up the group so that two can defend this um, this base while the other five are trying to transport um, or trying to get their transportation working again. It's just something I love to see, like where um, this, the stakes are high because of what they have to guard as well as what they're trying to escape. Um, of course, taking place in New York City, they're trying to get out of the city. Um, we have friendly neighborhood Spider-Man wearing Doctor Strange's cape, and that uh, that's personified in itself. So um, happy to see that make a return. I was eager to see how they were going to have zombies eating each other, like eating our heroes or our heroes killing the zombies without so much of the gore. I mean, needless to say there, there may be no blood in this episode, but I mean, bullets are fired at our characters. You, you almost think that some of them will get their heads chopped off. Well, whereas others do, and they do all that without show, showing an ounce of blood. And I think that that was um, a nice feat for them, right? Because this is supposed to be a lot of audiences are supposed to receive this. And so uh, younger audiences, especially and doing a zombies episodes without blood makes you think like, well, how, not what if, but how will you even do that? Um, But they do it excellently in my opinion. And I, I had a lot of fun watching this episode. It's kind of cool to see our heroes uh, knock out each other uh, in the zombie form. And um, all I got to say is like, don't get too attached because uh, this is a zombies episode. And we all know, you know, if you're watching a zombies flick, Odds are one of your beloved characters that you see on screen. By the time the end comes, they're going to be um, a bunch of uh, brain craving beasts. Sam, what did you think? So with this episode, I, I'm actually the complete opposite of Noah. And I actually never liked zombies. I I, I don't know why. I, I guess it goes back to the whole horror thing. And I'm not a huge fan of horror unless it's like a cerebral kind of horror. But anyways, so I didn't know what to expect. I was really interested in seeing how they would approach seeing our like favorite superheroes in their zombie form, kind of like what you said. And, and honestly, this episode was, um, it, to me, I thought it was pretty solid. I was excited to see this alternate universe of like what if there was some kind of infection that infected my uh you know earth's mightiest heroes and so here we go this was an episode and that was a really good observation that you made about how there really wasn't an ounce of blood because i was expecting some bad bad times you know there were some scenes where like especially there was one where like i'm not going to mention any spoilers but like there were some zombies that looked like they were getting close to a character's eyes and i was i was thinking this is going to be graphic i can't look and then it it turned out to not be bad at all and so that was just a really good observation especially when you don't really want to alienate any younger audiences who might be watching this and so whatever it might contribute to like you know future marvel cinematic universe projects i'm not sure i'm not sure if we'd ever see the return of zombies again but in general I, i thought it was a pretty solid episode in the mix of what we've had so far and it's been really nice because as a whole what if has felt like a really nice well-rounded 
show for uh, Marvel. It, it just feels like each episode is very different from the rest. And, and I, I think that's really exciting. And it just makes me more excited for future projects. So, uh, and then if you watch the episode, the kind of the surprise at the end, holy cow, I was really surprised at <laughs> what happened. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I, I can't wait for everybody to see it. So how about you, Brandon? Yeah. The, the funny thing is, is that I almost wish this had been the finale like, this feels big enough to be the what-if season one finale, where it's, you know, almost everyone in the MCU, it's a big enough threat to the MCU, it's a big enough story to the MCU, um, especially, again, with that ending, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's big. Um, and I almost wish it had been that. That being said, I am also with you. I think this is solid. I'm not in love with it. I think there are, I think there are plot elements that could have been stretched out, and again, that's the limit of the, you know, half an hour kind of normal animated setup that they have. I wish they would expand longer, but I get it. Animation is more expensive. You know, there's more voice talent involved. Fair enough. Fine. But I, I wish they would. But as it is, this is fun. Like, I had a lot of fun with this. Um, Especially, again, with, you know, that kind of zombie trope of it all of, like, you don't necessarily identify with the zombies. You identify with the survivors. And in this case, we get a really ragtag, fun, eclectic group of survivors. Like, I love seeing more of, you know, Winter Soldier and Peter's banter in the wake of, you know, Civil War when we saw, like, you know, the harsh introductions, so to speak, if you want to call it that. And, like, seeing the almost like a big brother almost kind of figure. And obviously hearing, you know, Chadwick back again as T'Challa this time is more the T'Challa that we know and love. And it's great. And he's, you know, a mature leader and he's bringing a sense of weight, weight, uh, sort of, uh, sort of weight to it, I should say. But I think it was most impressed, actually, by Evangeline Lilly who I've always liked in the Wasp movies, but there was ever an argument to be made for Pulp Van Dyne as a pivotal member of the Avengers going forward, it's this episode. She shows incredible, you know, gravitas and and, um, and composure, and in addition to just being amazing, like that whole, you know, ending battle sequence that I, you know, both spoiled to an extent, but she's amazing in that, and she has really awesome moments in it that rival anything that Scott Lang has done. Again, you go to the lack of blood thing, but how they're able to use dread and horror to their advantage and certain other things. I think the Doctor Strange episode does more to the horror and scariness of that. Like, I felt more inner dread and kind of that seeking feeling in that episode than I did with this. This is more, you know, fun, bloody, disgusting kind of stuff. But yeah, overall, this is fun. I would definitely put it higher up, but, uh, you know, solid enough. And I want to add, uh, you took the words out of my mouth, Brandon. When I think about something that is, uh, when I when I was anticipating the zombies episode, you know, thoughts come into my head of like, um, what kind of dark elements are they going to pull? How dreadful is it going to be? Like, what what is this? What is the um, expectation of hope going to be in this episode? Not the character. And then um, I immediately am reminded of the Doctor Strange episode because that you know, that is the horror episode. I think that one is the one where you you lose all hope for our central character and you really go down that pit with them um, up until the very end. And that, we all gave it so much praise last week. Coming to this episode, you know, there's the horror element that exists with zombies, but it the way our characters are navigating themselves and looking out for one another, it's fun. It's, it's a new, it's a new Avengers team that we haven't, uh, maybe we haven't spent enough time with. Like I loved seeing Okoye. Um, I loved having more time with the winter soldier. Um, we even get a period where the winter soldier is holding cap shield. And that in itself was a scene that I was waiting to, to, to see uh, visualized. And they all have such creative ways of killing zombies. So for anything else, just go see how our heroes use their powers uh, to knock out the undead. A little bit of Echoes of Zombieland in there that I appreciated. I, anyways, let's uh, let's get on with it. 
Uh, ranking in terms of what if so far, where does this rank? I, I will start off for this. Um, I think this is right there in number three. Top to bottom, I would right now go two, four, five, three, barely over one. I'm oh, taking a second. <laughs> I know. I'm like, Brandon, you use those numbers and I'm like, oh my gosh, one, two, three, four, five. Okay. So it's going to go Doctor Strange, Zombies. Um, and then I did T'Challa, Captain Carter. And last is the, the like mystery murder. Um, you know, what would happen if all the Avengers were killed off? I, I would say four, three, five, one, then two. That's kind of where I'm at right now. So I agree with you. It's like a solid third for me, this episode, episode five. And, so. and we still have all like the, the drastically different rankings, which is still very impressive. <laughs> yeah. I love to see it though. It makes things exciting, I think. <laughs> By episode 10, we'll have to see how different our list becomes. Like if our top now exists, like in the bottom of what the full ranking becomes. Anyways, let's get on with that. Uh, you two have seen Nine Perfect Strangers, or at least up to the current point of Nine Perfect Strangers on Hulu. And I want to get your thoughts on that before we move on. So let's take it from there. All right, Sam. Nine Perfect Strangers. I feel like if I had to just butcher a summary right now, it is about nine um, very prolific actors um, being playing these very different roles, very... Um, I would say like character types uh, who are visiting a retreat where they are hoping to be transformed and their transformer um, is going to be a combination of Nicole Kidman uh, who plays um, a Russian character named Masha. Um, But she's joined by some other camp leaders who are uh, Manny Jacinto, who is in uh, the good place. So people may recognize him from there. Um, And then uh, Tiffany Boone, who is also uh, a prominent figure in in the people who run that retreat. All we've watched is episode one. So uh, the biggest things I have to say are um, like, what names am I looking forward to seeing in more episodes? So we start off with Michael Shannon's character. He kind of plays like the dad um, who's coming there with his wife and two kids. Um, But then shortly after, we're introduced to Melissa McCarthy's character, who is an author and also uh, recently single. And she's not happy about uh, her her romantic situation. And on top of that, on her way into the retreat, realizes that her publishing deal is like falling through. So she's actually might lose her job. So she's going through like kind of an emotional roller coaster as she approaches this retreat. We understand that the characters are all in different states of their lives, um, but still going to be transformed by the end of this. So um, I, I'm going to toss over to Sam just to get like her, uh, your introductory opinion on how this series uh, felt for you. But I think uh, if you could include which characters you're most um, attracted to watching like transform, I think that'll help this conversation. So for me, it's Melissa McCarthy's character. Her name is Francis. And then um, we're going to be talking about uh, another picture that features this Uh, artist this actor but her name is regina hall and her character's name is carmel so those are the two those are the two characters that i'm looking forward to watching uh transform at this retreat sam yeah no well said you definitely didn't butcher the the Uh, summary at all that was perfectly (laughs) that was perfectly good um so then i would say that the characters i'm most interested in seeing transform would be also melissa mccarthy because i don't know there's just something about her story it seems like she has the most baggage at the moment and so i'm just really curious to see how this retreat transforms her and i'm also interested in seeing where luke evans character goes as well his character's name is Lars lee and it sounds like he also is going through a recent breakup but like in this first episode we seem to see a lot of the 
medical themes addressed in in the retreat because there's um, a certain requirement where they have to have like your medical files on hand and you think that's to help them out right but you get this eerie feeling like there's more to this than meets the eye and so we only see those medical related scenes really with luke evans's character so i don't know if maybe there's something in in the background about his character that we don't know about something medical um but i'm, I'm just interested in seeing where that goes to and um actually carmel as well uh, regina hall's character uh just because she seems to be so far the one who's most open to the retreat, like and open to making changes. And it's like, okay, this could go drastically, you know, like South for this character, because so far she's really handling it well in all the changes. And some of those changes include like stripping away your phone because they don't want any distractions on this retreat. They want you to be away from the outside world. And in fact, this retreat also encourages that people don't post about it on social media. So it's like, okay, that's weird. Um, But anyways you know like that's just kind of a big thing and she immediately gives up her phone when prompted so it's like i don't know she's just interesting um and i would say that with this tv show you know at first i wasn't sure about it i think it's just because of the exposition you're starting to get to know each of the characters and with nine of them like nine specific people on this um, retreat it just it, it could feel like a bit much when you're introducing each of their stories um but the ending it really goes south very fast and to me it almost feels midsummery and i think it's because of that same like unsettling vibe you know something's not right there's a lot of um I, I would say like purity references where like a lot of the people who are in charge of the retreat are wearing like all white um and there's even a point when they introduce masha nicole kidman's character that she like like her introduction is that she's like bathed in this white light that's kind of behind her and she's dressed in all white and she's a very pale person this pale character so it's just like i don't know there's something that that gives me midsummer vibes because of that where things are very bright and light looking very minimalist and it seems like a friendly retreat or a friendly festival and it's like let's have fun or let's improve ourselves but then things go very south very fast in that first episode without any spoilers somebody gets super upset and we have yet to know why you know like because it's definitely a great way to scratch the surface on oh no this isn't what we're thinking it's going to be like so uh, so far i'm having a lot of fun i I think it's it's a really great show so far and I, i can't wait to dive into the next episodes um, just to, to continue that point, these nine, I mean, I knew that the show is called Nine Perfect Strangers, but I'm thinking like, okay, but there's not nine main characters. Like that's very difficult to do in 43 minute episodes, because what am I getting like six or seven minutes of each person's like next few steps before the episode's over and I have to wait again. Um, thankfully, we're a little bit behind the train. So we have plenty of episodes. Maybe next week, we might even review the next two episodes or something something similar. Uh, but I'm definitely with you on the Midsummer vibes. There's something about Masha that seems that she's putting up, a, I don't want to say a facade, but there is something going on here that, uh, you, like you say, more than meets the eye. The, her long speech at the end of the episode talks about how she was, how she died, like how she was killed and was born again out of it. And so she wants all of these characters to go through like a rebirth and to, to discover like what changes that brings with it. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe surface level, I'm not sure if, I don't think that anybody will die in this show. We're not getting any like of those cues, at least from what I'm uh, watching, but we are getting like the deeper sense of like, what are they going to leave off 
What part of themselves are they going to shave off by the time they leave this retreat? How dark will it go? Um, I'm ready for a series that doesn't go super dark because that seems to be like the stretch of what a story can be. It's like going to include murder. It's going to include like some kind of um, twist at the very end that that is for um, fans of uh, some of those dark elements, like I mentioned. But for the nine characters, uh, it's going to be hard to juggle all of them. Uh, it seems that this retreat is meant to play with all of their minds. And so the very first episode, yeah, they're stripping away everybody's phones. Some of these characters even have backups. Um, but now that they've knocked that out, I'm kind of happy they they did spend a lot of time on the phone, the subject of the phone um, in that first episode. So now that they're all gone, I'm ready for episodes two through the end to just show me what that transformation is like. The ed- episode ends with um, Nicole Kidman looking at the face. And when she looks at the face of these characters, she's really looking at the audience because it's only her face in view of the camera. And she says, I mean to f- with all of you. And that line in, in itself makes me think that this is going to be a trip for each of these characters. I'm ready to see each one like deliver a performance of them being broken and piecing themselves back together. Um, it could be, if it matches my expectations of what it, of what I'm hoping for, then um it could be a great vehicle for each and every one of them. Um, I hope they don't drop the ball. And then real quick, I also think it's interesting that the characters we're gravitating towards are not the ones in groups because there are also people on this retreat who are groups like the family or like the married couple. Like we, it's interesting that we didn't gravitate towards those people. We gravitated toward the individuals. So that is the first episode of Nine Perfect Strangers. It is streaming on Hulu right now, week by week basis. I believe there's two episodes left of season one, as far as I checked. So go check that out if you are at all interested. We are going to move on to our directorial debut for this week. This is our segment where we talk about the first film of an established filmmaker or new up and coming filmmaker. We you know vary piece by piece, week by week. This week, we're talking about 2000's Love and Basketball, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. This is actually produced by another uh, directorial debut recipient, our first one that we did a couple weeks ago, Spike Lee, uh, and his 40 Acres of the Mule Production Company. This is, again, Gina Prince-Bythewood's first movie. You might know her from uh, projects like uh, The Secret Life of Bees, and also last year's The Old Guard, which was actually one of my favorite movies of last year. I absolutely adored that. This essentially tackles the dueling stories of two basketball players, one uh, one played by uh, Sana Latham, and the other played by Omar. Omar Epps. Uh, they grew up together in the late 80s in Los Angeles, and essentially Omar Epps' character wants to be, you know, famous in the NBA. His father, played by Dennis Haysbert, was a famous player, is now going to more of the, you know, scouting division of the NBA. Uh, and Latham's character is the daughter of Alfred Woodard, who is kind of a very traditional, you know, mother kind of figure, wants her to be less quote-unquote tomboy, but she has a dream of becoming the first woman in the NBA or to be, you know, a basketball superstar in her own right. And the film basically follows their journey, uh, their friendship, eventual romance into high school. They go to USC together. Uh, they begin to, you know, go their diverging paths, uh, their own success in their own right. And the film features a kind of who's who of a lot of, you know, early 2000s uh, Black Hollywood. You've got uh, Dennis Haysbert in there, obviously. You've got uh, Regina Hall in there uh, in an early role. You've got Tyra Banks in one of her earliest roles. You've got Gabrielle Union in there. The cast is basically stacked. Uh, no, I want to go to you first. Uh, what did you think about Love and Basket? Was this your first time seeing it? And also, uh, just what did you think of this in terms of uh, maybe your other experiences in uh, Gita Price Wife with other filmography? Um, I am familiar with The Old Guard because I too saw that last year after uh, it premiered on Netflix. I really admired it. I, I thought that it was um, a great comic book film. 
my sister was a basketball player. Uh, my old, my elder sister. So she's three years old, three years older than me. And her and my mom watched this film, like just as one of the afternoon films, like while I was playing video games or something. And I was like, what's this about sports? Eh. And then I like ran away back to my room, uh, <laughs> but returning to it now, I actually watched the first half of my sister and she, um, I could see the smile on her face. Like this was, this was one of those movies that really, um, pulls your pulls your heartstrings i mean the movie's called love and basketball so expect a romance story but this is uh the story of two neighbors um who have they're both uh, equaling interest and passion for the sport of basketball basketball i said that's so weird um but what was so great to me was all of the like girl boy next door moments that they share because their rooms are opposite one another in each household so they have these very touching moments um they're best friends before they're even romantic partners at all and that's what i love to see in this film i think that the way that she uh, captured these two characters made me believe in the love that they had that wasn't always romantic but one of my favorite lines uh, happens near the end because uh the their love story is not one that is um, I mean, this movie takes place in like three different chunks, right? So you get their childhood, you get their high school, you get them in college, and then you get, um, I believe you get them later on, later on as, as an adult. It, it takes place in quarters because it's basketball. In quarters. Ah, oh, thank you. Well, in the final quarter, there's actually a line that I love. And um, we have Lathan's character saying to um, Epps, who is going to be married in a couple weeks, she says, I'll play you one-on-one for your heart. And um, although it's like a funny moment to Epps and they kind of like laugh about it and it's, it's like goofy. Um, Lathan is by all intents and purposes, serious, uh, putting her heart out there on the line for somebody who is um, somebody who has regarded her with so much love, but they had a falling out in college because of um, a family situation. Well, they, they wrap up that game and um, Omar Epps' character Quincy says, you know, double or nothing as she's walking away. And that's when she knows that like the love is there and he's willing to um, re like re-enter it with her. And for me, I'm a sucker for romance. So that that the love that is portrayed in this film is so real, and it get, it hits all the chords of hey, this was my elementary school love where we just pretended we knew how to touch our lips and then ran away and then fought like in the same day, uh, broke up the next day, and then in high school um, you're rooting for each other, but you have very different directions that your life may be going, so you don't kind of know how to navigate that. Um, that's all I want to say for now. I'm curious about, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. It's funny because I, I've seen most of Gina Prince Blythewood's movies minus uh, her movie after this uh, disappearing acts, which also had Sonny Latham in it. Um, but I really enjoyed Sacred Life of Bees. I love the old guard, as I already mentioned uh, and beyond the lights is underrated. No one talks about that movie. It's great. Um, so I, I've always really liked her approach to you know humanity and specifically black love and, you know, black social issues and things like that. And I think she totally tackles this really well. I will say just right off the back, I don't like the ending. I think the ending is, I, I know it's supposed to be, you know, schmaltzy. I'm sorry to make you cry. <laughs> you, you can't see it, but Noah's bawling. Um, bawling. Bawling. Uh, oh, my God. Why did I do that? Ah. Oh, my God. You walked right into that one. Ah. <laughs> Ow. That's it. Podcast over. Um, anyways, I... I don't think the ending necessarily works because you you mentioned that line of like, I'll play you for your heart. And my whole thing is like the way that that's set up, obviously there's all of this connection there between, you know, Sana Latham and Omar Epps' characters, uh, Monica and Q. Yeah, and Q. And I love the connection between them and I think it totally works, except for the ending because I don't think it's fair to Q's character, which 
being fair to Q's character, it's kind of a jerk through a lot of the movie. Like, we shouldn't need to be fair to him for a lot of it. He's abrasive. He's very clearly influenced by a very traditionalist view of masculinity, a, a very toxic masculinity, if you will. And I don't want to show too much sympathy for him. But at the same time, you can't just come back into his life after, you know, five years playing for basketball and be like, no, leave your wife, who you're clearly attracted to on some level. There's clearly a relationship there. So it just gets cut off at the end because we're supposed to see them together. And I, I don't love that. That being said, I love everything else about this. Uh, the relationship is tender and wonderful. And you mentioned the whole kids thing. I love how she portrays those kids. Like they are total, you know, juvenile, don't know any better kids in love who don't know they're in love. And I love that element. But then as you get into high school, like you see, you know, uh, Monica has, you know, this really huge ambition for getting to the NBA. And you see Q has these unrealistic expectations to live up to. It is very much as, you know, Gina Prince wife has described in interviews, a, you know, black when Harry met Sally, but, I think just as good. I think the characters are fleshed out. The themes are great. The soundtrack is excellent. Again, the supporting cast, if you go back, is like, oh, that person's in there. That's cool. Oh, they're doing a good job here. And it, it feels incredibly supportive and warm. And the cinematography is really well done, especially in the basketball sequences. So I really, really wound up loving a lot of this. Uh, Sam, I know you haven't finished it yet, so I'm sorry for spoiling the ending for you. But what did you think of it uh, regardless? No, no, that's okay. Yeah, I had a busy week this week, so I only got to see about half the movie. I think I literally stopped right when it said third quarter. So yes, we are at literally the half <laughs> half time. Um, but it's, uh, no, I, I have honestly love the movie so much. And and what I really appreciate about uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood's um, work is that it's like very diverse. I mean, we're even talking about some of the prior work, like Old Guard, The Secret Life of Bees, actually, which I'm not sure if any of us mentioned just yet, but she also also did that. But um, yeah, it's just like between that and this and, and Love and Basketball, it's, I, I, I was excited to see her directorial debut and I absolutely loved it. I'm also not the type who usually gravitates towards sports movies all that often. There are a few I can name that I love, but otherwise it's not like my go-to have to see it. And so I really enjoyed it because I thought that the love between both Q and Monica was so tender in those early years. And that was something that I absolutely loved seeing. It was just it, really refreshing because it, it wasn't perfect. And that's really nice to see that it wasn't like that storybook romance for these two. And especially loved just that dynamic between them as kids and then into, into you know, like high school students and everything like that. And then also in college, especially because Monica's thrown quite a few curveballs in her life, um, especially in college. So, it, it, you know, I just really enjoyed it and I'm excited to keep finishing the movie because I did really enjoy all that I've seen so far. <laughs> so, no, and, and you guys didn't spoil it that much for me. The way I see spoilers is like, I don't know how they got to that point. So we're all good. <laughs> Speaking of the lead, uh, Sana Lathan, I was wondering why I recognized her face when I was watching this Love and Basketball. And I was like, uh, like, don't look it up. No, like, don't play that game. Like, come on, like, you, you know where she's from. I had to look it up. She is from Alien versus Predator. And I don't know about y'all, but that is a, such a high up action film for me when I was growing up because um, I would always watch it on FX. Like it was always on FX and um, AVP Requiem. Don't talk to me about that. But the original Alien versus Predator. Oh boy. And then her performance in that movie. That movie has such a satisfac satisfying journey for our main character that you know yes a lot of her crew does end up dying in the film but you're rooting for her as the alien slash predator champion freaking um uh, i couldn't even tell you like i guess because i'm not as familiar with the aliens franchise like she was my she was my my ripley that's who she was um that's blasphemy my friend 
<laughs> I know I, I need to return to aliens. I saw it like only a couple times, but I was wondering, you know, where some of these faces I've seen them before, because you're not lying. Like there are short appearances, even from these characters that you understand to be leads now. So when you see their character, you're like, Oh, like Gabrielle union, she's going to be um, the love interest of Omar Epps um, th- until, until they reach adulthood. Like, Oh, that's the character that she's going to play. But then no, we get into um, his adulthood and he's actually engaged to, Oh my God, it's Tyra Banks. <laughs> like what? you're definitely going to pick out the faces um, as you're watching this. I even recognized um, Monica's mom. She plays, uh, her name's Miriam in Captain America Civil War. She's the one who approaches Tony and says, hey, my son died in Sokovia. You know, and she blames him for his mur- for their his murder. So, uh, so much familiarity here. We support Alfred Wood of the Queen, who has been in everything. Let's get into it. Uh, Love and Basketball. What are our ratings? I will start off for this. I, this is a nine for me, easily. This is the best film we covered on the series so far. Uh, I think what Gina Prince-Bythewood does, this is a tremendous start to her career. Uh, and I, I should actually add, she is not directing The Old Guard 2. That is actually Victoria Mahoney, who worked on uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Uh, but she is returning as a producer. So I figured I'd bring that up. Um, so happy to have her back. Uh, but no, I, I cannot wait to see anything that she does next. Uh, I think her filmography is really deep and sensitive and really just has lovely stories that have just the right elements of you know comedy and drama and weight to it. All the signs of a great filmmaker. I wish more people knew her name. Uh, and I think this is a great starting point if you are willing to look into her filmography. I think it's a great sports story. It's a great romance story. It's a great coming of age story. And I would absolutely recommend it. I'm going to give this an eight, eight and a half. I would give it eight and a half. For my rating for this, I I think I would also go with like a like a solid nine because honestly, I love what I've seen so far. Granted, I know I haven't finished it the the film just yet and seen it in its entirety, but it it's it was so good and I think the acting jobs were phenomenal and it was so well put together and yeah, I I, I don't really have much more to say other than that. I feel like the the rating speaks for itself, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, good to go on there. Love and Basketball, if you're curious, is obviously available on BOD. It is also streaming on HBO Max right now. So if you have HBO Max, please go check it out. That will do it for us for today's episode four of Plot Devices. We have wrapped the show, everyone. Thank you all so much for tuning into this uh, week by week. And I can say week by week because once again, Spotify, we have it. Plot Devices Pod, go follow it there. Uh, we are also working on getting uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts up as well. Those should be up in hopefully the next week or two. So just bear with us on that. But go follow us again, Plot Devices Podcast on Spotify as well as Plot Devices Pod on Instagram and Twitter and Plot Devices Pod on Facebook as well. Sam, I believe there's a Facebook page. Yeah, it's Plot Devices Pod all across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yep. Our resident social media are Samantha, Samantha and Corvaya, who, <laughs> who tell us where you can find you and what you've got going on in your life. Yes, goodness, what do I have going on in my life? Things have been busy at work, but it's been fun. Uh, that was a very hot ones outro, by the way, Brandon. Uh, but yeah, you can find Don't me. You tell, am I that blatant? <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on uh, social media on, on um, Twitter at s underscore Incorvaya, and we'll have that spelled out somewhere in the description because my last name, I love it, but it, it could be hard to spell. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram at Sam I am five twenty in a much easier spelling. Um, and so uh, I guess coming up for me, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the reviews I have coming up but at the moment i can't think of them off the top of my head but either way you could find me on odyssey online just like the rest of these lovely people here and uh how about you know where could people find you uh sam brandon thank you everybody who's tuning into our fourth episode we're definitely all happy to be uh contributing to this project you can find my work at um 
at Odyssey Online. My, my full name is Marcos Noah Guzman. So go ahead and search that name and you'll see my latest review uh, was actually for The Night House. So I'm considering writing a malignant review. And I think I actually might because of how much that movie uh, kind of like threw me for a whirl. So I'll be working on that one in this next coming week. Uh, but you can follow me on Twitter. So uh, my name is at J-S-Y- K-N-O-W-A. I want to change it because I need, I want something that I could say like really quickly and you won't question the spelling. That's it for now. Thank you. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. You can also find my articles as well on ASU Odyssey. I will be having a review this week of uh, the eyes of Tammy Faye, uh, Michael Showalter starring uh, Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. Excited to write about that. That's basically about it for today. So once again, for myself, from Noah Guzman and from Samantha Gravaya, this has been Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in and uh, we will catch you guys next time.